0: It's great to be with you. Let's take our Bibles. And let's turn to Luke chapter 20. And uh, also, when you get a chance, you're going to want to go to Colossians chapter 2. Just stick your finger in Colossians. We'll just be there for a second. But Luke 20 will be our main passage. It's really good to be with you, to see your faces. I, uh, like Jeff, have been having to attend via the internet, you know, was watching the live stream for the last three weeks. And, uh, I'm very appreciative of that and, uh, and thankful for the guys putting the, the effort forward with that. But boy, there's nothing beats seeing your faces. Uh, I think uh, one of the things that's so encouraging is as I look across and I see different faces and I'm reminded of different stories, uh, just of your lives and the things that you have exampled to me. And I got to tell you, just to see your face and to be reminded of those things is a great encouragement. So thank you for, for your ministry to me. Let's look at chapter 20 in Luke. We're going to spend some time thinking about the authority of God that is shown in Christ. We'll read the first 18 verses here. On one of the days while he was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders confronted him. And they spoke, saying to him, "'Tell us by what authority you are doing these things.' Or who is the one who gave you this authority? Jesus answered and said to them, I will also ask you a question, and you tell me. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? They reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered, that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey for a long time. At the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers who, uh, so that they would give him some of the produce of the vineyard. But the vine growers beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. And he produced, I'm sorry, he proceeded to send another slave, and they beat him also and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he proceeded to send a third, and this one also they wounded and cast out. The owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the vine growers saw him, they reasoned, "'with one another and saying, "'This is the heir. "'Let us kill him so that the inheritance will be ours.' "'So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. "'What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? "'He will come and destroy these vine growers "'and will give the vineyard to others. "'When they heard it, they said, "'May it never be.' "'But Jesus looked at them and said, "'What then is this that is written?' The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. Everyone who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. Let's pray. Father, we come before you acknowledging that you are our God. You alone are sovereign. And we thank you for revealing and showing this to us through your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that no matter what we go through, no matter what we experience, personally or corporately, it is not apart from your authority found in Christ. And so, Lord, we ask for your wisdom to abide in him, to allow you to do in us what you alone have the authority to do. Lord, we thank you for this time in your word. We ask for your wisdom that you be honored. For your glory in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Whose authority are you living under now? Whose authority are you living under now? In verses 2 and 8, we see that this is the issue in this account. In verse 2, they spoke, saying to him, Tell us by what authority you are doing these things, or who is the one who gave you this authority? In verse 8, Jesus said to them, Nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Whose authority are you living under now? Growing up in Louisiana, in high school, my dad had a car that was, was a sporty car. It was, uh, had a, a lot of pep to it. It was really fun to drive. It was stick shift, so that made it even more fun. And, you know, for a lot of you younger people, you don't understand that. <laughs> but uh, it's, it's all the difference in the world, really. And uh, Dad was, uh, he, he, was uh, he was one that enjoyed the power of that car. It was a lot of fun to ride with Dad. One day, uh, I had an evening activity at the high school, and I asked my dad if I could take his car instead of my truck. He said, sure, son, go ahead. So I took the car, and after the activity was over with, my buddy and I jumped in my car, and a bunch of other friends were in another car, and we decided that we were going to go out to some restaurant together. I didn't know it, but my dad was there. My dad had some tools in the car that he needed, so he and my brother had gone to the school to get the tools, and when they got back in my truck, they saw me jump in the car. My dad looked over and he says, oh, look, there's Kelly. And right when he said, there's Kelly, I started laying rubber in every gear. Got out on the road and did it again. And my dad, my brother said, my dad just looked at me and said, well, isn't that interesting? Follow him. So my brother got behind me, and he told me, my brother told me he got as close as he could. He would try to get closer and closer, so I would see him in the rearview mirror, and my dad would say, back off a little bit, back off a little bit. We got to the first stoplight, and I pulled the emergency brake, and everybody in the car jumped out, and we ran around the car. My dad was three cars behind us. Didn't know it. Jumped back in the car. Had a problem getting the emergency brake off and the light turned green, I still couldn't get it off. Finally, I got it to release, and because we had been sitting there so long and there was all these cars behind me, I panicked and I laid more rubber getting across the intersection. Passed a bunch of cars going in and out of traffic, and finally we pulled into the restaurant. I parked next to my friends and they were killing themselves laughing. Was just, that was so funny, oh, that was so... Then I saw one of my friends in the other car, his face just dropped from a smile to this. At the same time, I heard the door open, my my door open, and I turned around and I saw my dad's hand in front of me. I recognized that hand, and he only said one thing, let's trade. I gave him his keys, he gave me mine. I turned around and I saw my friends in the other car pulling out of the parking lot. (laughs) I got in the car, we skipped the restaurant, I dropped my friend off, and I went straight home and faced my dad, and it was not comfortable. I could act as though it was my car. I could act as though I had the authority to drive it the way I wanted to, but that did not affect one iota the truth that it was not my car, and I had no authority. It all belonged to my dad, and he proved it. In Colossians chapter 2, in verses 9 and 10, we find this, For in Him, for in Christ, for in Him, all the fullness of deity, all the fullness of God dwells in bodily form. All the authority of God is found in Christ. In verse 10, and in him, in whom we find all the authority of God, you have been made complete. I don't know about you, but for myself, sometimes I abuse that. That I've been made complete in the authority of God found in Christ. And I live as though that authority is mine. That I can make the decisions, I can determine my path, But that verse ends like this, and he is the head of all rule and authority. We must come to terms with this. This life is not about me. This life is not about us. It's all about him. He simply allows us to live in who it's all about and only when we come to terms with that truth will we begin to know the confidence the assurance the rest that comes with God's authority found in Christ Jesus uses a parable here and there's like any parable there's 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 a picture here to see there's there's different characters found in this parable. And it's important to understand who they represent or what they represent. First, we have the planter. This is God. We have the vineyard. This would be Israel. We know this from other Scripture references like Psalm chapter 80 and Isaiah chapter 5. In Psalm 80, verse 8, we read this. You, speaking to God, of God, you removed a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground before it, and it took deep root and filled the land. In Isaiah chapter 5 and verse 7, we read this, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his delightful plant. So we see that the planter is God and the vineyard is Israel. The vine growers... According to the context of what we're reading here in chapter 20, I believe them to be the chief priests and scribes and the elders, as found in chapter 19, verse 47, just before we get to our text, and also chapter 20, verse 1 in our text. They are the perceived spiritual leaders of the people. In other words, those who should recognize... And welcome the authority of Jesus Christ. But they don't. Then we have the slaves. And I believe again within the context we can, and with other scripture, we can come to the conclusion that the slaves would represent prophets, or at least those who represent God. And this text, we find that John the Baptist is mentioned, and he would be, he would fit into this. He would be, you know, one of those prophets who represented God. But also, 2 Chronicles 36, verse 15 says this, the Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them again and again by his messengers, because he had He had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they continually mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of God arose against his people until there was no remedy. And then again in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 12, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way the they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So in this parable, we have the planter, who is God, the vineyard, who is Israel, the vine growers, the perceived spiritual leadership, the slaves, the prophets, the representatives of God. And then in verse 13, we have the beloved son. The planter says I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. God the Father expresses his thought toward his son at the baptism of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 3 verse 17 it reads like this, God says through the Holy Spirit, This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. The beloved son in this parable is Jesus. And so what's the problem that we're dealing with? We see in verse 14 that the the people, the religious leadership, did not want to come under the authority of the planter. See in verse 14, But when the vine growers saw him, they reasoned with one another, saying, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance will be ours. They do not want to come under the beloved son. They want the authority, get this now, they want the authority for themselves. But guys, listen, we were not designed to exercise authority. We were not created for this. We are not designed for this no more than the popcorn popper is designed to play music. I saw Ryan earlier this morning with baby Jack. Jack's a sweet kid, a good kid, but Ryan would never entrust Jack with the keys to the car. He wouldn't know what to do with it. And he's incapable of doing anything profitable with it. We, we, we are not designed for this. The authority is not ours. It's impossible. John 15:5, Jesus says this: I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, and I like to tell our students, that the Bible actually tells us what we can do. Apart from me, you can do nothing. See, it's not about us. It's all about him. He simply allows us to live in who it's all about. Galatians 3.3, Paul says this, and he's dealing with this same problem where... We think we we have something in ourselves that the authority is found within us to live the way that we should live. And so he says this in Galatians 3.3, Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, listen, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Are we really being perfected by the very thing that we've been saved from? You know that Arlene is Canadian. Actually, I'm the only non-Canadian in the family. My daughter married Tylen, who's from the same town as my wife. So I have spent some time in Canada. Used to work there. Years ago as a young man, I worked there as a framer on a large framing crew. I got my start in construction in Louisiana. And we built small houses there, very small, about 1,300 square foot, pier and beam. And we had a a little thing that we would do as we were framing. We're putting the walls up, and one of us would run over with the level and put it up against the stud to see if it was plumb. One of the carpenters would yell at me and say, how do we look? And I would say, close enough. He'd say, all right, nail it. See, we could do that with these small, one-story homes. When I moved to Canada and I worked on this large crew, we were building large structures, three-story buildings. My first day on the job, we bang a wall together. We stand it up. I'm very confident because I've done this before, so I grab the level and I run over to check it. One One of the partners, one of my bosses, says, how does it look? And I said, close enough. He looked at me and said, come here. So I came over, and he leaned over, and he says, Kelly, this is a three-story building. If we're off by just a little bit on the first story, by the time we get to the third story, we're going to be way off. Close enough is not close enough. Valuable lesson. Close enough is not close enough. This problem did not come all at once. This was something that was a progressive reality for them. Look at how it works out in verse 10. In verse 10, when the slave comes, they beat him. In verse 11, they beat him and threatened him shamefully. In verse 12, they wounded him. And then the beloved son is sent in verse 14, let us kill him. In verse 15, they threw him out and killed him. You see the progression. It has been said that obedience is the conduit to further spiritual revelation. Obedience is the conduit to further spiritual revelation. I think John chapter 15 would would agree with this. You know, as we abide in Christ, we find within that chapter, the context that, within the context there, that abiding and obeying are synonymous. So as we abide, as we obey, we produce. So if obedience is the conduit of further spiritual revelation, I think it's only reasonable to say that disobedience is the conduit of spiritual, further, spiritual ignorance. Walk through Scripture with me. Let's start in Exodus chapter 20. I want you to see the progress of something that happened to the nation of Israel. In chapter 20, and then we'll, uh, we'll work through, we'll go to 1 Kings, 2 Kings, and finish in the book of Hebrews. In Exodus chapter 20, very short phrase here, but God says this in giving the law. In verse 3, You shall have no other gods before me. Very straightforward, very simple. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, look at 1 Kings chapter 12. While you're turning to 1 Kings 12, I'm going to read from Amos chapter 5, verse 25. It says this Did you present me with sacrifices and grain offerings in the wilderness for 40 years, O house of Israel? You also carried along Sikhuth, your king, and Kion, your images, the star of your gods which you made for yourselves. So yeah, they, while they were going through the wilderness, they had the tabernacle. They participated in the sacrificial system that was given to them by God. But they also had their other gods that they worshipped. Watch how it progresses now in 1 Kings chapter 12. Here... The kingdom has divided northern kingdom, southern kingdom. Jeroboam is the king of the northern kingdom. Rehoboam is the king of the southern kingdom. Jeroboam recognizes a problem here. If he doesn't do something, he sees that the northern kingdom, his subjects, will leave him and return to Rehoboam and unite with the southern kingdom because of the worship of God. Them going to Jerusalem, them taking part in the, in the Old Covenant sacrificial system would cause them to return as one kingdom. He saw this as a problem, so what's he going to do? Being a part of Torchbearers for, for years, I was, uh, while at his hill, I was in charge of music. There was a certain kind of music that was coming out of a certain denomination that was very popular back in the 80s and 90s. And I had issue with it because the teaching of this particular dom- denomination was heretical teaching. But the music was very popular, and I just wasn't comfortable using their music, though it was very, very popular music within the church. I just had a check in my heart, and I didn't do it. So one time I went to Charlie, and I said, Charlie, listen, this is this is what I'm, this is what I'm going through. But I I don't want to be you know I, I don't want to be making a mountain out of a molehill. And he looked at me and he says, Kelly, I fully support you in this. And he used this story here of Jeroboam and how he handled the possible reunifying with the southern kingdom. He said, Kelly, this is how the enemy will destroy us. He will come at us through our worship. He will make us comfortable through our worship. And this is just what Jeroboam is doing. Look how, he, look how he deals with it. So the king consulted and made two golden calves. And he said to them, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold, your gods, O Israel, that brought you up from the land of Egypt. See, making worship comfortable. But we know from Romans 12. Verses 1 and 2, worship is a sacrifice. It's a lifestyle of sacrifice. It is costly, not convenient. But Jeroboam says, I'm going to make it convenient. It's too much for you to have to go to Jerusalem every time to worship. Instead, look what I'm going to do. I'm going to set it up for you here. Much more convenient. Verse 29, so he set one in Bethel and another he put in Dan. Now this thing became a sin for the people went to worship before the one as far as Dan. And he made houses on high places. And he made priests from among all the people who were not of the sons of Levi. Convenience in worship No cost, no sacrifice. So look how it plays out when we go to 2 Kings chapter 17. 2 Kings chapter 17. And here we'll read starting in verse 6. Beginning in verse 6, chapter 17, in the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and carried Israel away into exile to Assyria and settled them in Halab and, Hora and Habar, on the river Gozen, in the cities of the Medes. Now this came about, verse 7, because the sons of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up from the land of Egypt, from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and they had feared other gods. Have no other gods before you, before me. They feared other gods and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord had driven out before the sons of Israel and in the customs of the kings of Israel which they had introduced. They were, they considered themselves what? They considered themselves part of God's nation. They considered themselves being in right relationship as they did participate. In the old covenant sacrifices in the wilderness, but they brought other gods with them. Close enough is not close enough. Proverbs 16.25 says this, There is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Whose authority are you living under? There is a way that seems right. We don't go these ways because they don't seem right. They seem right. But its end is death. Turn to Hebrews chapter 5. The writer of Hebrews is dealing with the New Testament believer, and he's having to deal with the same thing. Close enough is not close enough. Chapter 5 of Hebrews, beginning in verse 11 Concerning him, concerning Jesus, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. As you read through Hebrews, you find that these are people who at one time did live, they did know the rest of Christ that Hebrews encourages us to enter into. They knew this, they lived this. But he says something's not right, you've become dull of hearing. Verse 12, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. I believe that the practice he's talking about refers to the believer's obedience to the obedient one who is Christ, and this is found in verses 8 and 9. Obedience, abiding. These believers should be mature. They should be teaching, yet they need to be taught again the elementary things. And as you work through Hebrews, you find that the problem is that they're not According to chapter 12, they're not fixed on Jesus. So how will the planter respond? Back in chapter 20 of Luke, we see the response of God. We see the response of the planter in verses 16 to 18, where he says, "...he will come and destroy these vine growers." and will give the vineyard to others. When they heard it, they said, may it never be. What is the planter's response? Well, the response is one of destruction. A destruction of the vine growers and a giving the vineyard to others. And this is what the Lord has done. In Acts chapter 10, verses 34 to 36, Peter is at Cornelius' house. So he's preaching to these Gentiles. And we see a big shift happen in the book of Acts, where the gospel is now going to the Gentiles. And this is what Peter says in verse 34 of chapter 10 in Acts. Opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. But in every nation, the man who fears him... He's the one in authority. The man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. The word which he sent to the sons of Israel preaching peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. The planter responds, we see in this passage, with Jesus. The response To the rebellion of not coming under God's authority is Jesus. In verse 17, but Jesus, I'm sorry, but yeah, but Jesus looked at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This is the most quoted Old Testament verse in the New Testament. It comes from Psalm 118, verse 22, which simply says, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And in Acts 4, verses 11 and 12, Peter tells us just who the cornerstone is. In verse 11 of chapter 4, he says this, He is the stone, Jesus is the stone, which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. God's response to man's rebellion is Jesus Christ. God's salvation, listen, okay, please, listen. This is one of those moments, you know, I I like to tell our students, one of those moments where if you're sleeping, go ahead and wake up. Hear what I'm going to say, then go back to sleep, and I'll tell you when to wake up again. God's salvation is not salvation from hell. though it does involve not experiencing hell. You see, God's salvation is what? God's salvation is being saved from me. My pseudo-authority, my pretend authority, This is my salvation. Therefore, God's salvation from me is not me. Because he's saving me from me. God's salvation from me is Jesus Christ. Are you stumbling over or rejecting the authority of Jesus? Romans 8, Paul says it like this in verses 3 and 4. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh. See, the problem with the law is not the law. Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law of the prophets. I came to fulfill. We know in Hebrews that the law is the shadow of, 100% truth, but only a shadow of the substance. Not the substance, but the shadow. The problem with the law is me. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, listen, God did. See, my flesh could not, but God did. How? Sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. This is our salvation. We have been saved from us. We have been saved from our pseudo-authority, from our pretend authority, that we might know the authority of God found in Christ. This is our salvation. And then there's verse 18. And I got to tell you, this is a disturbing verse. I have struggled over this verse. I have dug and dug and dug. I have done the word studies. I have gone to many commentators. And I have struggled. We're to come under the planter's authority found in Jesus or be destroyed. Destroyed. Everyone who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. There are two schools of thought with this verse. Both coming from very conservative, solid theologians. Yet they have two schools of thought from it. The first thought is this, that the first statement, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. That this statement refers to those who come under the authority of Jesus Christ. They have recognized this, and they come under that authority. And they are are broken. They are dying daily. And they believe that the second statement refers to those who will not come under the authority of Jesus Christ. But on whomever it falls, the stone falls, it will scatter him like dust. It will pulverize. That's the first school of thought, that the first statement refers to those who come under the authority. The second statement refers to those who refuse to come under the authority of Christ. And then there's the second And I have really struggled over this, but I find that I'm beginning to lean toward this one. It's a very sobering thought in that there is no escape for those who will not recognize the authority of Jesus Christ. And perhaps there's even more emphasis given because it's being the emphasis being made in that it, it it's stated twice in the same verse two different ways one theologian says it like this a collision with the stone will destroy you and perhaps this is Jesus is using this terminology perhaps sparking a thought in the crowd's mind because there has been found a very ancient rabbinic statement, a familiar saying at one time among the Jews that went like this, If a stone falls on the pot, it will smash the pot. If a pot falls on the stone, it will smash the pot. In other words, the same result. Whether the stone falls on the pot or the pot falls on the stone, the stone will not be broken. There is no way to avoid this. Reminded me of Philippians 2. But Paul says this in verses 9 to 11, For this reason also God highly exalted Christ and bestowed on Him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven, on earth, or under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Folks, are we rejecting the chief cornerstone? Are we submitting or resisting? Are we obeying, abiding, or disobeying? Are we coming under the authority of Jesus? And this is not only for the unbeliever, but also for the believer. Colossians 2, 6 and 7 read like this. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, as you have received Him, by grace through faith, As you have received, and we have no problem with that, do we? As evangelicals, we tell the unbeliever, you must receive Christ Jesus the Lord by grace through faith. There's nothing in and of yourself that can save you. You need Jesus. We have no problem with that as evangelicals. But Paul goes on to say this, as you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him by grace through faith. Verse 7 goes on to say it like this, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in Him and established in your faith. Just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude, There's no escape for those who will not come under the authority of Jesus Christ. There's no escape. There's no escape for those of us who will not come under the authority of Jesus Christ. Yes, certainly this is true for the unbeliever. Hell is the certain destination, the reality for the one who will not place their faith in Christ. And just because we're found in church does not mean... We're not among those those number. We've all probably known people that have grown up in church who have been faithful attenders, been a part of the Bible studies, who have sang the songs along with us, who have gone on the mission trips, who have worked with the youth group, only to come to find out later in life they have never placed their faith in Christ I know I've seen that. I've also seen a number of students come to Bible school believing that they belong to Jesus, but never having placed their faith in Him. And it's been our privilege to watch a number of students come to know Jesus while at Bible school. But it's also true for the believer we too must come under the authority of Jesus Christ because there is no escape but a certain devastation. For the believer who will not come under the authority of Christ, 1 Corinthians 3.15 says it like this, if any man's work is burned up, he will, listen, suffer loss. We don't have time to go into it, but if we went through the warning passages in Hebrews, we would find just how deep, how horrible this suffering is. Where I believe in chapter 10 of Hebrews, it actually brings us to the point of this that if we voluntarily, willfully sin, will not come under the authority of Jesus Christ, there comes a point in our life, according to Hebrews chapter 10. Again, we don't have time to go into it, so take my word for it. (laughs) No, read it yourself if we do not come under the authority of Jesus Christ as a believer, there comes a point where God in his faithfulness will take us out of this life. I believe he's being faithful in doing so that he might bring us into his presence, that we might live the life he saved us for. It's all about him. It's not about us. He simply allows us to live in who it's all about. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. But listen, but he himself will be saved. Yet so as through fire. One of our relatives was in the congregation when I was preaching one time, and I read Colossians 2.6. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. And she told us that though she had heard that verse before, she had never heard that verse before. She had placed her faith in Christ. She was saved, but she was buying into that pseudo-authority, that belief that now that I am saved by Christ, it's up to me be like Christ. And she, for the first time, had come to realize that this is not about me. Being like Him, it's about Him being who He is in me. This is not about me, it's about Him. He simply allows me to live in who it's all about. In closing, I'd like to apply this in a way that has really hit home with me. I think we have a very timely application for coming under the authority of Christ. Today, in the time that we're living in, a very timely application in just how we will deal with the COVID virus. This is an exciting time to be alive. This is an exciting time to be a believer. I once read the back cover of a book. I do a lot of reading of back covers. Billy Graham once said this, we always want the mountaintop experience. I think, yeah, I do was in charge of the outdoor program at his hill for a while, and we used to take students to the top of mountains. Wonderful experience. But Billy Graham went on to say, we always want those mountaintop experiences, but if you've ever been on a mountaintop, you'll find that there's nothing on the mountaintop that you can survive on. And he went on to say, but we need those times in the valley to gather what is necessary. to survive and enjoy the mountaintop for all that it is. Folks, we're going through a valley. Praise God for the valley. Because if we dare to come under His authority found in Christ, we will find that this time is an incredible time, incredible time of being reminded of the certainty of his presence, the certainty of his love, the certainty of his faithfulness, the certainty of his authority. Arlene and I have very dear friends in Louisiana who have lived an incredible example before us, who have preached a phenomenal sermon before us and just how they live their life. She was diagnosed with terminal cancer. Her response was this, okay. I was really taken back by that. Okay. God is in control. Christ is my life. Okay. And not that the Lord will always do this. I've seen the opposite by those who are just as confident But he healed her of it. Her husband, at age 40, had his first heart attack. He's had multiple heart attacks, multiple surgeries. The last one he took, didn't take. And his his whole attitude has been this, okay. It's all right, because what? God is in control. He is the one in authority, and he shows that to me daily through his son, Jesus Christ, who is my Lord. And so both of them have made this conscious decision, I will live, I will live today. And they have, they have lived it to the fullest for decades now, dealing with these things. And right now, they both have been hit with COVID. He's in ICU, and it's grim. But I can tell you, because of the sermon they have preached to me, I can tell you what his heart is like right now as he lays in that hospital bed. They have been incredible examples of those who will come under Christ's authority even in the midst of aggressive cancer, multiple heart attacks. They have already showed me that they have come under the authority of the one who says, I will never leave you, nor will I ever forsake you. They have come under the authority of the one who says, nothing can take you out of my hand. They have come under the authority of the one who says, if you believe in me, you will have eternal There are examples of those who dare to believe him for his will and not believe him for their will. Believer, our security today had better be in Christ, who is the head of all rule and authority. It had better be in Christ who is the head of all rule and authority and not in wearing a mask or not wearing a mask. Our security today must be in Christ. It had better be in Christ who is the head of all rule and authority and not in being vaccinated or not being vaccinated. Our security today must be, it had better be in Christ who is the head of all rule and authority and not in social distancing or not social distancing. Our security today must be in Christ who is the head of all rule and authority and not in whether we're going to lock these doors or not lock these doors. Because Jesus says, if we recognize anyone else or anything else, including ourselves, to be in authority instead of Him, then our only certainty is a devastating reality of being broken and scattered like dust. Whose authority? are you living under? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the clarity of your word, for the centrality of Christ in always bringing us back to Jesus and in doing so, showing us you for all that you are. And so, Lord, today as we go through the trials that we go through, we ask for your wisdom to abide under your authority shown in Christ. For, Lord, this is all about you. It's not about us. Thank you for allowing us to live in who it's all about. Thank you for not leaving, for for not forsaking. Thank you for holding us in your hand. Thank you for your eternal life. Thank you for Jesus. It's in his name we pray with thanksgiving. Amen.